If you want it, baby, I can show ya. If you want it, I can get to know ya. If you want it, baby, I can show ya. If you want it, baby, I can show ya. Let me explain as I'm taking it off. Let me explain how I feel about us. If you want it, baby, I can show ya. I can show ya. Welcome, everyone, to. An interesting episode of Sperm Donation World. It's going to be an educational one, no doubt. And today we're going to talk about HIV. Uh, there's been a lot of medical breakthroughs over the years and it continues to uh, evolve. And we've got two people that are currently residing in New Zealand from Body Positive and Positive Women. I've got Mark Fisher and I've got Jane Bruning. How are you all today? Yeah, we're good. We just got a got a mini lockdown, unfortunately, which is for the next seven days. But I think we're all getting used to working from home and working on Zoom now. It's not the worst thing working from home, is it? No, it's not. <laughs> <laughs> like today. Uh, yeah, these lockdowns. I mean, we had one a couple few weeks ago now as well in in Perth. So yeah, they're annoying, but. Yeah, as soon as we get rid of that week or we can go back hopefully to a bit more normality and, you know, I think New Zealand's done it pretty well uh, over there and the way of handling it and I think Australia's probably not too far behind, mm. uh, especially over where I am in Western Australia. So anyway, we'll start with you, Jane. Tell us about HIV and how you first came across it and your education, you know, the shock of it all when it came out to the world about this pandemic or whatever they however they described it back then it was uh yeah well I guess I think my story would be quite different to Mark's in that I was living in Tanzania and and uh, working there and I started seeing through my staff actually because some of the people that were working for us started dying and the typical story was TB and you know, after six weeks, they'd die. And this was quite common. And, you know, as much as I saw it, I was a bit naive around it, thinking that, I guess, you know, in Europe, I'd heard that it was it was the gay men's disease. And I don't know, for some reason, it didn't kind of register that I needed to be a little bit extra careful. And, and so I wasn't. I mean, I, I had boyfriends who were um, both expats and local and... I, a boyfriend, an ex-partner died and um, I was told that he had AIDS. Um, I went and had a test and at that time I was living in a place called Mwanza and they weren't even acknowledging there was in Africa at that time or not in Tanzania. So I couldn't even find anywhere to get tested. But I found a local got a mission hospital that was run by Dutch Mission, missionaries and they they tested me and was told that I had AIDS at that time which was 1990 that I was diagnosed but I had had it then for two years and I guess having seen what I was seeing all around me it was absolutely petrifying I mean it was also petrifying in Europe and what people were seeing in Europe but I was seeing a different you know it was in a place of poverty and in a place of you know, people dying very, very fast, same as they were in Europe, but it was all people. So, so um, it was very scary. There was no medication. There was no, um, it was you know, three years to live, basically what I was told. So that was 
hugely scary. And I mean, I'm not going to go into all the details of the whole years, but, you know, really stigma is something that kept me silent for many, many years, 17 years, basically, before then I started working for Positive Women. But, you know, we left Tanzania and went to England and England were just trialing AZT at the time. And so I went on the early trials of AZT, which was the first medication. And when we moved back to New Zealand in 94, a couple of years later, they came out with the new antiretroviral medications. And I've been on those basically since then and still here 33 years later. So, you know, that, that's, I don't know why I survived. A lot of people didn't. I, I was lucky that I contracted it towards the end of the 80s and was able to hold in and hang in until the antiretrovirals came out onto the market, um, which has been a game changer. It has just changed the whole face of HIV. You said, uh, you know, you must have had it for a couple of years. You know, it was when they did the test, did they find like your viral load in, in your blood that it was at a level that would have been a couple of years, you know, and then... <sighs> To find that out, you know, as you said, it would have been very surreal and, and traumatic to think, well, I'm potentially going to die now. And then you're at the hope of, you know, is there going to be a cure coming out or is there going to be? I mean, I mean, I remember when I was young in, in the 90s, it would have been seven or eight starting that. Starting that, You weren't expected to live long. Um, you know, people wouldn't want to touch, uh, shake a hand. I think Princess Diana was one of the first people to shake a person's hand publicly with HIV. You know, there was a lot of stigma, you know, and did you feel that, you know, you couldn't come out and tell people because you'd be uh, shunted, you know? It would have been really traumatic living back then with that to where we are now. Yeah. I mean, it was hugely stigmatising all around the world, I think, but definitely in Africa where I was living in Tanzania and nobody spoke about it. I mean, I, I was in a re new relationship and he was also positive. So um, he, he contracted that from, well, from me over the two years that we had been together. Being a heterosexual male, he was very adamant that we didn't tell anybody. I think his first words were, oh, they'll all think that I'm, a, I'm gay and, um, and, you know, that you're a drug, uh, that we're drug addicts or something like that. So... Because of his attitude towards it, I had a small child at the time when I was diagnosed. He had just started school, so I was about seven. So it was very easy not to talk about it because I was petrified. I wasn't going to tell anybody. I was actually, it probably took me three or four years to kind of, I was preparing to die. So I spent the next three or four years just trying to figure out what, what was going to happen to my son, where were we going to be. And so it was hugely petrifying and I, I didn't, I, I disclosed to one or two very close friends, but um, that was it. My family were in New Zealand. I wrote them a letter and I told them. They were very proactive and contacted the New Zealand AIDS Foundation and got themselves informed. So I was never um, shunned by my family I was, or any of my friends. So, you know, things that people that I told that were close. But um, our relationship, my relationship with my ex-partner sort of fell apart. And I came back to New Zealand on my own with my son. I mean, I guess for me, it was about looking after my son, protecting my son. I, I didn't want him to get tarred by discrimination, stigma. So I kept quiet. It was very easy to keep quiet. It was, 
a struggle because often, you know, when I was at work, I used to have to go to my medical appointments and I'd have to sort of need time off work. And the easiest way around that was always it was just med- a woman's issues. So, you know, nobody asked any more questions. But, you know, taking the tablets, taking medicines. I remember my son when he was about 12, 14, somewhere saying, oh, what are those tablets for? And I said, oh, they're vitamins. And he said, oh, can I, can I have one? And I said, no, they're women's vitamins. So, um, you know, there's a lot of lying. Yeah. And for me, that meant that I was not prepared to go into a relationship. I've not been in a relationship in 25 years. That, and that's my choice. Yeah. Um, I've heard, I think maybe you've learned to live this way now that you're, you're comfortable and, you know, it's sort of 25 years is a long period of your life now, isn't it? Um, so, you know... You, you found out that you could be, you could die potentially any time. Were you analyzing any symptoms if you got a cold or, you know, was there symptoms coming in that you, you know, that, that played on your mind that you thought, could this be the start of, of death knocking on my door? Did you have to change your diet that you wanted to eat more? You know, what was, you know, was there, you know, we, the, the internet wasn't out there then really with the content that it has on now. So you, couldn't really be exploring and and finding out all this sort of um, stuff to try and you know look for um, uh, backdoor medical procedures or um, you know word of mouth of things that could potentially work. Uh, I think I remember back in, uh, watching Dallas Buyers Club a few years back now how he um, was importing all these FDA non-approved drugs to. Um, get that ball going and trying, you know, just that desperation or hope of trying to cling on to life. Yeah. I mean, living in Tanzania, I mean, there was no, you know, there was one radio station, which was in Swahili and one newspaper, which was also in Swahili. You could get the BBC, but not always. And so there was very little knowledge. I think the first few years were just um, survival mode. Um, I definitely went into some kind of depression. Um, and, you know, as years sort of, for the next three years, I started to sort of lose a lot of weight. I certainly didn't, I mean, I, I kept smoking and I was probably drinking more. So I said it didn't sort of change my diet to be any more healthy. But I think it was just in coping mode. I was just trying to live from day to day to try and, yeah, and... So I started losing weight and I started getting skinnier and, you know, to me, that was the signs. I had no real other health conditions. When I look back to the previous two years, I could see where I had seroconverted. So that's when, you know, that, that when the virus actually kicks into your body and a lot of people can be sick at that time. And I remember having, um, I thought it was malaria and I was sick for two weeks and the malaria treatment wasn't working. And so, again, I went, you always go to the mission hospitals. <laughs> you can't get better. And they, they diagnosed me with tick fever and treated me. So it took me about a month to get better. I was very, very sick. And I think that was the seroconversion that was happening through that time. But And I had a little bit of shingles, which is quite a common side effect when your immune system is low. But other than that, I didn't have any symptoms. And... You know, my losing weight, I think, was more around depression than it was around anything to do with HIV. 
the testing that I had in Tanzania was just a yes or no. They didn't do biology testing. They didn't do CD4 counting. So I didn't find any of that out until we went back to England, which was about two and a half years later. At one time, I did fly back to England because we'd heard about the medications and I thought we could buy some pills and take it back, but that didn't, didn't happen. A very significant point for me that when we moved to England, it was right when um, Freddie Mercury died. And I think for me, that was a huge shock because he was someone famous, was going to, you know, couldn't find medications or couldn't find a way to stay alive. Then what hope did we it just, um, yeah, was, and, and so my partner and I um, split up, I came back to New Zealand. The thing that worked really well for me and has been part of the reason I'm, I'm with Positive Women was that I went for, um, I went to peer support organisations, both in England when I was living there and when we came back here. Uh, went to counselling, did a lot of stuff just to have someone to talk to because I wasn't sharing it with everyone else. Having a counsellor was really good to be able to talk to. Going to peer support groups so you could talk to other people in a similar position. And I, I found that hugely empowering. And I really think support organisations play a pivotal role in um, well-being of people living with HIV, and which is how I got to be working in, in the field. Um, but, you know, now I've been on medications all these years. My viral load is what's called undetectable. And my CD4 count is around, you know, 1,200, which is the same as anybody else. Most people who had not got HIV it's probably on the higher end of people. So my, my immune system is, is robust. The only problems I have now is getting old, <laughs> getting wrinkly, which I don't like. You know, my son knows. He found out at, you know, at 21. I asked him at that time because I wanted to go public when I started with Positive Women. Yep. And he was fine with that. And, and, you know, I found being public about it and I guess, you know, for me, it took a long time. It took 17 years to get used to it. And I've been public for about 17 years. So another 17 years. It's like I found it just, just a huge relief to actually be public. To be not public, it's to be able just to say I've got HIV. You know, it's, um, I've found that I haven't had any significant discrimination. Mm. And so, in a way, I kind of I feel frustrated that I spent 17 years being scared of something that isn't possibly a reality. But I know that it is a reality for a lot of people as well. Um, I've known lots of you know in my time working with positive women, heard lots of horrific stories about people being discriminated against. Um, you know, and getting to pregnancy. You know, when we start talking about that, it's you know women in the earlier days were told to have abortions or terminations rather than have pregnant babies and lots of horrible things, you know, even be sterilized and things that are really absurd. But for me, luckily, I, I didn't experience that. But, you know, I'm probably from a position of a bit of privilege, being in the position I'm in. I'm in a very safe environment because I work in... I think I'll stop it there. <laughs> yeah. No, you covered, you covered a lot, Jane. So, Mark, you're still there? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Tell us a little bit about yourself, your introduction, and how you became in, um, involved in the world of uh, HIV. Um, mainly because when I came out, I was back in like 86, 87 in Australia. And at that time, when I was coming out, was the same time 
lots of news around HIV was kind of hitting that sector into the, you know, coming out in the news. And so that's what I came out into. So everyone was, you know, it was, as I said, as being a gay disease and people were afraid and coming out into that space was quite um, uh, risky and you know, made people nervous. But um, it also had an opportunity where I could get involved and make a difference. And that's where I switched into the work that I was doing at the time. So I joined the National Serological Reference Laboratory in Australia to actually start doing testing for people living with HIV around the country. Um, and we developed a system to do that. And so that's where I've kind of been involved is always trying to understand it and know as much as I can so I can make a difference and help people. So yeah, that's kind of how I got involved in this space. And then, you know, naturally a lot of my friends and people have passed away during the time. And um, I moved to Canada in 95. And in Canada, about one in four gay men in Toronto uh, are living with HIV. So it's a lot more prevalent. So I knew a lot of people living with HIV. Um, and again, it's how do, you, how do you support your community through this? Because it is a pandemic that we're living through. Yeah. It came out in the, uh, it came really public known in the 80s, HIV. Um, people dying from AIDS. It was associated as Jane portrayed it and, and thought it was as well. And, and I think many people around the world saw it as a gay, gay man's disease. Why is that? Is that because the yeah, anal's got more blood veins that exposed to it? Is, is there a different um, high risk through transmission? Uh, you know, where did all these theories and conceptions come from that? put it into that field that it was predominantly a gay man's disease um that's because uh, back in the day it was seen as a gay cancer so when people didn't know what it was there was a lot of people getting carposy sarcoma which is the lesions on the skin yeah um and that's when it was kind of first identified so it was seen as gay cancer and that was what it was labeled at initially um and then it became uh grid which is gay related immune deficiency because people were picking up all these different um illnesses from the immune deficiency. So it was called GRID. Um, and then it switched over to being the three H's, which is around hemophiliacs, Haitians, and homosexuals were the only people that were getting it. Because I was trying to work out what this thing was and where it was coming from and who it was affecting. And it was predominantly homosexuals um, in that space at, at the day, because we have really small uh, networks of people that we connect with. And so if a virus gets into that community, then it gets passed around fairly easily. And as you mentioned, the anal wall is a really fragile space. So you get tears easily, which means transmission of fluids is really easy in that space as well. So it's easier to transmit um, amongst a gay men, which is true today. And so that's, you know, it's easier to transmit. We have smaller networks. So it's, you have tighter connections, which means the transmission happens a lot faster in those spaces. So that's where it initiated from. And then it moved into... Um, uh, hemophilus Haitians uh, for some reason and then into injection drug users because they were injecting blood and so that was one way that it would get transferred really easily as well so. So how long does HIV live outside a body because you, you hear stories about um, syringes in in children's playgrounds and stuff like that and people running out and getting tested you know is it is it body to body direct transfer or is it something that can be found on a needle hours later like what where, where's that at what's that what's yeah what's the outcome so, so there's there's been no community like like 
transmission in the environment. So HIV is really fragile. It doesn't live outside the body. So you won't find it on the surface of a desk or something like that. Um, the way it transfers from needles is that there's a, it's protected from the air because it's inside the needle. And so when somebody injects that piece of blood that's inside the needle into themselves, that's where the risk of transmission happens. So it's not just through surface contamination or stuff like that. You won't get it from sharing a glass or bedding or cutlery or any of those things. There is no risk in that space. Or the so toilet seat. Or the toilet seat. Or you know, all those kinds of myths that we had back in the day. Um, you can't get it from that kind of casual transmission, from kissing, from oral sex, all that stuff. is Actually, it has the... the blood fluid has to actually get into your system is what has to happen. So it's actually kind of hard. So yeah. I've, been, I've been doing a bit of research and a lot of people do artificial semination uh, using a known donor, which involves fresh sperm per se. And yeah. my understanding is, and I haven't got seek real qualification. I don't want to give out obviously medical advice and that, but if a, if a sperm sample was done and, ex and exposed to air for, you know, say six to 10 minutes, does the HIV, can the HIV survive or is it very, I've heard that it's less chance of it once it's exposed to air being able to survive once it's being exposed to those air elements. Are you talking about the sperm or the, or the HIV? Well, the sperm, well, obviously the semen sample that a recipient yeah. is going to inseminate herself with. So she'll, she'll, uh, the donor will do his business in a cup. She will then grab a, um, a syringe say within 10 to 20 minutes of insemination uh extract the uh syringe up and then obviously she would inseminate into um her vagina now it, you know as you said like if you went to the toilet straight after someone with hiv and you came in contact with their urine you know we're, we're saying that's not you know you can't contract hiv that way uh and yes. in, in our, our would this be similar to a sperm sample as well it's it's slightly different. So there is no HIV in urine, so there's no risk there. Um, the way we did our program was that the people were doing the donation had undetectable viral loads. So it means they'd suppressed the virus to the point where you couldn't detect it through lab testing. Um, and there is no HIV in that sperm donation. So you can safely do that, um, you know, donation and then take it and then insert it. And there's no risk because there is no virus. Yeah. Um, if somebody had a detectable viral load, so they had a high viral load, um, then there potentially would be risk. So in the case, if you're going through a, a blood bank where they're doing, you know, spinning the samples and that kind of stuff, that re removes all kind of traces of contaminants such as HIV in that case. So there'll be no risk in that case if you had a detectable viral load. But if you're undetectable, you can actually have intercourse and there's no risk of transmission. Uh, right? uh, mate, is there, is there yeah. a known... Is there a known time limit that that you know the, they put HIV under a microscope, exposed to the air, and say now the virus is dead once it's been exposed to air element for a certain period of time? Is, is do we have those sort of figures now in from these studies over these years to say you know when you know how long can HIV live outside of human body? My understanding it's a very short amount of time. So, you know, and I often say this to people, if I prick my finger and rub the, my blood on the table and that blood was dry and someone else put their hand on it, they wouldn't get it. If I got my blood and rubbed it on someone's skin, they're not going to get it. So you, you can't get it just from that ca casual contact. <clears throat> and my understanding is that the virus 
It's probably a matter of minutes. It's a very short amount of time that it lives. But I have heard that in some instances it has survived longer, and that could be in the cases like what Mike's talking about when it's inside a needle or something like that. But my understanding is that it's a relatively short time. Yeah. Yeah, uh, I, that's my understanding as well. But obviously, yeah. it would have been nice to um, someone to say, you know, this set stays, stays, it can't live outside the body for 20 minutes or 30 minutes or something like that. It's sort of still, you know, an element of risk when you don't know how long it can potentially live for and the variations of, of, of it living for that, that long. Sperm banks back in the 1980s operated quite differently. A lot of it was involved with you know, fresh sperm, a guy would come in and donate and they would inseminate someone with um, that fresh sperm that day. And then obviously to, in order to um, remain open and, and operate, sperm banks were now like, well, we will freeze the sample and store it for six months. And then after six months, we would retest you to see if you had AIDS or HIV. Now, this was sort of, a, a, my understanding was a quick fix to try and remain open and times haven't changed now since in terms of you know uh u equals u now that's come out so why do you feel that clinics are still holding on to the fear card of we store the store the sperm for six months then retest because i mean if, if u equals u which means undetectable undetectable means untransmittable is this old term, um, old science or old health methods that should be eradicated in modern day science and health? Do you want to answer that? Yeah, I can answer that. I'd say yes, because we know, like, if you actually have sex with another person, if you're undetectable, you can't pass it on, mm -hmm. right? We know that as science. So if you're making a donation at a sperm bank, they could use that sample immediately if you're undetectable and can show that. Um, and, uh, and use it as a donation. So when we've worked, we work with uh, some fertility clinics here and they, they freeze and store and then respin for uh, and check for um, you know, effectiveness of the sperm to make sure it's still viable, which is fine if you have, you're having difficulty with conception and you need medical support. So that's a good way to go if you need to, in terms of the sperm bank. With sperm positive, we did mostly matching programs where people were doing home insemination through our program. So because they didn't have need of medical assistance, they just needed someone to make a donation. And so most of our clients went through home donation and just, they, you know, they met up at the right time and made a donation and away they went. And that's how the babies we've got have come around is through that program. So there's no reason why you couldn't use a sample immediately because we know people can, and like in New Zealand, the last positive baby we had was in 2007. Um, and we've had lots and lots of babies, two mums that are living with HIV. Like there, it, we know that it works. Yeah. Mm, it's, it's, it's lovely just to chat about this and, and make people realise how minimal the risk now is of contracting um, HIV through the way we do it. And I just feel that the clinics are still trying to hold it as a... Um, a fear card to say, well, use us because we will store it for six months and redo it, which it's like, well, you're bullshitting the customer. If we've got this, we've got this philosophy. Well, we haven't, you know, we've, we've worked out now that you equals you, if it's not in that sample today, that sample cannot infect someone six months later. Mm. And, um, you know, to me, it seems like it's holding back 
people with HIV and the HIV community by not coming forward and saying, right, we're readjusting it now because you can't get HIV based on today's sample. So what, you know, it's sort of a safety mechanism for them to say, oh, well, we're, we're protecting you because in six months' time we'll retest the donor to see if he's got it then, but which is totally irrelevant of that sample that day. Yeah. I, I suspect what? there's still a lot of stigma involved in all of that and not so much what? even with, the, with the, um, the fertility clinic, but the perception, if it was to be found that they were holding sperm that was from people living with HIV, people may be nervous about going there. And... Um, and also the possible, you know, fear of of if it didn't work, what would what would be the repercussions for the organisation? It comes back to that they don't fully understand what U equals U means, and I like your viewers are aware what that actually means. It's like when you have an undetectable viral load, that means that you get you go to a doctor, they take your blood, and when they take your blood they will measure how much virus is active in your body at the time. And then they also do what's called CD4 count, which they've nearly stopped doing now because it's not so important. And that shows um, how well your, um, your immune system is working. So that, that the HIV medication, what it does is it reduces the amount of virus in the body to a level that is undetectable. It's still in the body, and if you weren't taking medications, it would erupt again, but it's almost like it's sleeping. It's there, but it can't be transmitted to anybody else. The other advantage to that is that the person's immune system then can rebuild itself. And so that person living with HIV will be well. So then we have what we call an undetectable viral load, which means that that person cannot transmit HIV to anybody. So that's why we say U equals U undetectable so the virus that is in the body is at a, such a low level that it can no longer be transmitted equals untransmittable so that that's what that whole um that what that means so people can have natural sex who has an undetectable viral load and they cannot pass on hiv they can have a baby in a natural way and the baby will not be positive and they cannot transmit HIV. A woman who's living with HIV on medication can have a baby and the baby will not be HIV positive if she's on a medication. So, you know, this is the medical world seems to be very reluctant in, in um, backing up things unless they know it's 100% true. You know, um, they'd rather be safe than sorry in terms of, you know, being risked of being sued or uh, any liabilities there. Uh, so this has come out now, U equals U, and it seems to be supported by what organisations, health organisations, you know, um, government organisations, you know, who's, who is backing this and saying, putting their name on it and saying, um, you know, this is 100% safe now um, with U equals U? The, the World Health Organisation, the CDC, uh, the National Institute of Health out of the US, <laughs> pretty much everybody. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's actually the first studies that were done were, were called the Swiss study, which was done in the early 2000s. And so and that, that was a study done between heterosexual couples and they found that there was no transmission um, between heterosexual couples with unprotected sex if they were on, on antiretrovirals and, and their virus load was undetectable. Then people said, well, that's only for heterosexuals. It doesn't work like that for, for the gay community. So two major studies 
scientific studies were done, and I can't remember the numbers, Mark, maybe you can, but they, there was like two studies done with hundreds and thousands of people and nobody got HIV in those sexual encounters. So there's scientific evidence. And so if you think about it, it's been since, it's more than nine years now that this evidence has been out there. Yet it's just, I mean, I think it took a little while for the HIV community to accept it. And then trying to get that out to the wider community has taken even longer. It's just... um, it's funny, you know, we look at, um, you know, um, science and health development as a whole, and I'll use an analogy um, in terms of, um, you know, the female contraception, the pill, and the talks about making a, a man's pill. Um, so, And then you get a lot of women on, on forums and sites saying, well, bugger that, I'm not trusting a man to take his um, pills every single day. Uh, you know, um, I'm going to stay on the pill. So uh, basically my question around that is, is how often do you have to take medication once you're HIV positive to maintain uh, a, vir- a viral load that's undetectable? And is, is it a case of forgetting for a couple of days over a week that could make you back into that range, you know, because I, I think a lot of people are worried about uh, potentially using a donor with HIV if he, you know, if he hasn't got an alarm set to take his medication and, and stuff like that. You know, what, what's, what's the, how long would you have to be not taking medication to fall back into a, a positive viral load? I'd say a couple of months. Yeah. And, and the thing is, I mean, if you, it, we still advise, um, we still advise that if people are going to, you know, go through this process, that the person, the donor, is actually tested to make sure that they have an undetectable. Yeah. Once you start on HIV medications, you have to take it every single day for the rest of your life. And if you stop, the virus will come back. But you can you can miss it for a few days. You can miss it even for a week, and it will. It's not the best thing for the person living with HIV but the viral load will not increase that quickly. There, there really is no incentive for a man who has HIV to stop taking his medication to deliberately infect someone because he's putting his own life at risk and his you know, um, lifestyle. And also, uh, I'm not sure about the laws in New Zealand, but in Australia, I'm pretty sure it's up to 25 years um, as grievous bodily, bodily harm if you, if you do try and do that. So there's really no incentive for anyone to purposely try and uh, infect someone with HIV. And if they're on the medication yeah there's no reason for them to stop just to try and give someone that's just you know it would would be unheard of would you agree with that i think there's there will be cases of people who don't know that they have hiv but and some people in in rare cases who may be in total denial and that's and and so just you know go into that denial state and won't go and see seek medical help and there may be people with mental health complications, but you know it's very rare. Uh, unfortunately, we hear about them on the news, but it's it's very rare. I mean, n- nobody wants to give this to anybody else. And so there's, 
I think if it was to be spread these days, it would be more, as you said, it would be people not knowing they've contracted it. Other than just getting a regular STD test or STI test, whatever the terminology is people use in various states and countries, uh, is there any symptoms that you'd that would trigger you to go? Like uh, feeling fatigued, for example, you know, or as you said, I think you said gay cancer, Mark, with these rashes um, appearing. Is there any early signs that, can get people to go get checked early? Not really. The main, like some people get a seroconversion illness, which is like a flu-like symptoms that people get, but they won't necessarily realize that that's associated. Um, and if you get to the point where you've got Kaposi sarcoma or something, that means you've had it for a long time and you've developed opportunistic infections. So you, you want to get tested. What we tell people is to get tested based on their activity. So if they're having lots of casual partners, and they're not using condoms or, you know, they should really be getting tested annually, at least get, you know, do a general health check once a year, go and get your full SDIs done, get HIV tested, test for everything. Or if you're getting, if you have more than, you know, more casual partners into it every six months or every three months. So depending on what you're up to is how you should get tested. We have a lot of people that come in that are concerned because of something they did. They might have had oral sex from a sex worker, so they're paranoid that they've got HIV, which you can't get HIV in that fashion. And it, it causes a lot of stress and anxiety if you do it based on a particular you know, activity. Mm-hmm. It's better to actually just get tested regularly as part of your general health, right? Mm-hmm. And, and the other option too yeah. is that there's now PrEP, which is available. I don't know if that's how available that is in Australia, but that like, when people who are not positive can take it to prevent themselves from getting HIV. Especially, I mean, I think it's quite popular here in New Zealand in, in certain communities where people are being very active sexually. So they can take PrEP while they're being actively sexual and that would stop them from contact, contracting HIV. Um, and then they can stop it at some point when they're not being exposed. That's what, like, it's like taking the pill. Mark, you know more about this than, than I do. So, hmm. um, I mean, yes. that's a very good point. And, uh, you know, is but the what are the cost of HIV medication and what is the cost of PrEP? You know, can you go to the doctor and say, I'm having sex with a lot of people, so I want to uh, PrEP for enough um, for, for supply for the next three months? You know, what, how available is this and is it affordable to make it a logical choice for people to, to use? Um, it's more accessible in Australia than it is here. So here it's targeted towards um, gay men pretty much because that's the highest risk part. In Australia, it's a lot more accessible. It's around uh, 30 bucks a month. So, so it's pretty accessible and it works. It stops HIV. So if you're, if you're actively trying to, um, you know, having a lot of sex without condoms then PrEP is a good tool to stop getting HIV. Mm, so even if you're using a sperm donor, you could use PrEP and that would probably, yep. that would um, make you safe. Yeah, yeah. And the thing with, so as you were mentioning before around the, the um, six-month stand down on samples, the risk with HIV is not from people that know they have HIV because they know, right? So they're engaged in care, they're undetectable, so they can't pass it on. Um, so that's a, no, that's a known and trusted source, essentially. Your risk is from people who have HIV but don't know it, mm. right? Because they're not on treatment, they'll have a high viral load. And so the risk of transmission is quite high at that point. And so what, and the problem with HIV is it takes around 30 days to three months for it to show up on a test. So if you're having a donor who's um, had lots of other partners, um, has picked up HIV but hasn't tested positive yet, 
they could be highly infectious at the time of making the donation, which is where the six-month stand-down was coming from. So it's more for the HIV-negative person in this case rather than the HIV-positive person. Because the sample from the HIV-positive person, we know today they're HIV-positive, they're undetectable, so it's all okay. The negative person who's just picked up HIV poses the greatest risk. Yeah, but if that sample and he got tested that day on the day of the donation and he was undetectable at that time, that load from the semen would be undetectable as well, wouldn't it? And it, so that one for the positive, for yeah. the positive person. Yes. But for the but the person who's HIV negative who hasn't come back with a positive result yet could still be infectious. That's where the risk comes in. But the six months isn't gonna um, you know, they can test that sample, can't they? that sample right then and there on that day would say if he's negative now um, and he's, he's, cause obviously, as you said, it takes a, a month to three months to get into your system to give you a positive uh, viral load. And based on the theory of U equals U, if it's undetectable at stage, his viral load hasn't shot up yet to, to that he can infect someone until probably 30 days to three months. Would that, would that sort of, that's my sort of understanding on a, on a, if it's undetectable at that time of that donation, um, you know they're looking at that sample under a mic, um, microscope or what you know whatever they do to evaluate HIV, and they're not seeing it in there. Then that virus isn't in there to, uh, or enough of that virus is in there to uh, go into someone else's body and and infect them. Yeah, the thing is, even in a sperm bank, because they're going to spin it down anyway. Any virus that is there is going to get blown out. Because they, they're doing it to concentrate the sample so you get a better chance of your know, conception, right? Yeah. So it's it's kind of irrelevant either way whether there is or isn't virus in the sample because it's going to get blown out by spin. And it is it is interesting, <laughs> isn't it? Like, you know, this, we'll talk about spinning. Spinning was introduced. So it was originally introduced because of HIV to eliminate yeah. the risk of people who wanting to have children with a partner potentially that's got HIV um, yeah. to eliminate that. And now we see it commonly used for everyone, regardless if they have HIV or not, because I think a small percentage of women, um, when they do their IUIs, um, they can have cervical um, shock or pelvic um was that PID, inflammation, disease? There's a small percentage. So now they seem to use it as a, as a widespread, just a natural, normal procedure for washing, washing sperm now. And that's sort of what, you know, makes me angry with the clinics because, you know, there's clinics out there, Mark, that discriminate against gay men. And they'll ask you on your form whether or not you're gay or not. And if you click no, then I'm um, click yes. They will say sorry, we don't accept bisexual or, or gay men at the clinic still to this very day, and particularly in America and stuff. Um, yeah. You know why does this discrimination still exist when we've moved forward now to a time where we can detect stuff and we've got a better understanding of the virus? You know what? Why do are the clinics? going against, uh, you know, these uh, World Health Organizations, um, you know, and what their message that they're putting out now, it seems like there's still a bit of conflict out there between them trying to play fear on people's minds to actually saying how it actually is now. Yeah, and that's what we've seen here. Like we've, with the sperm positive, we've actually done a lot of work with the local fertility clinics and they've come on board and they've changed their procedures and they're fully supportive of people with HIV being donors. And the reality is that there is no risk, right? We know all the procedures, we know the science behind it. So there is no risk of transmission in those cases. We know if, you're, if you 
want to spend, that gets rid of any HIV that is there. Um, so there's no risk. But, you know, in our case, we're just helping people to have it naturally because they're undetectable on treatment and there's no risk of transmission. So. And, and all right, this is, um, let's say this is unethical or, or a person that, um, say is I'm a guy and I've got HIV and um, I've got my, my, I've got my uh, levels to an undetectable level. I decide to donate overseas to someone at a clinic there and I've done, I, like, I don't have HIV for the record, but um, for an analogy, I went over and donated to someone in Denmark. Um, I just uh, didn't have to present any um, of my Australian medical history to them or um, a fact sheet or a printout or whatever. It was just um, they, they would blood test me and, and uh, urine sample. You know, what is stopping, uh, uh, there's nothing stopping a gay, uh, not gay, or anyone with HIV donating at a clinic with an undetectable um, viral load and not declaring it because and whether or not they freeze it six months later is irrelevant because they've got their viral, you know, it's sort of just an honesty, ethical, I guess, an ethical thing mm. now to disclose, you know. People wonder, you know, your sperm positive is, is uh, something that you used to put together that encourages HIV men to do this um, in a way that it's, it's, it's creating acceptance and um, education and all that sort of stuff for um, others to understand that. But for a man that wants to be a bit more discreet, uh, there's nothing stopping him from going these days and donating at a clinic and not de- declaring it if he knows and they he's had an undetectable viral load. But you, you would still test positive for antibodies. So... Um, your immune system so you build up a response to the virus so you have to test antibody positive and that's what they would test the blood for so you're still hiv positive yeah but you don't have viral the virus essentially so do they test for two things obviously the antibodies and then obviously um the viral load is that is that two different measuring devices that they do for hiv yes Yeah, antibodies is the one most people test for. So that's your immune response. Yeah. Um, And then uh, the viral load is a much more complex and expensive test. So that's what they do secondary. Yeah. So if someone had, um, if someone had antibodies, that would would they then go on and do the other tests? Is that how it normally? Yeah. um, Yeah. Okay. (laughs) They should do. They probably wouldn't do it. They probably just block you based on the antibody test. Yeah. That's really what would happen. Yeah. So that's the discrimination piece saying you're HIV positive. So we're not going to have anything to do with you, even though you are undetectable. And, and I think that's what it needs now is, is to be challenged. Yeah. Um, this, the, you know, the sperm banks do need to be challenged, their fertility clinics. It, I think it's now up to advocacy and, and people. Yeah. And the, and the ones. That, yeah. That, you, you know, it's discrimination. And I don't know what the discrimination laws are like in, in Australia, but in New Zealand, we have the human rights. Mm. here and also have lots of other laws that we could actually say this is discrimination well the the first sperm washing was done in uh milan in italy is my understanding back in 1997 so you know it's 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 been a couple of decades now since the you know that that child was born with uh hiv negative uh, at at that time as well and we've seen it and we just you know it's it's a procedure that these clinics are doing every single day um and are they just is it are they paranoid of it not working are they not trusting it of of the person washing it properly that they is is that sort could have been could be a reason why they still got this discrimination that should be abolished 
it's, for me, it's it's hard finding out the logic of why these these parameters that the clinics still run by. Uh, I can understand when HIV first came out in the eighties, and it was sort of like we've got to keep our business open by by this. But it just seems like now it's they're yeah they're just holding back and you know if they can come out and be transparent and tell people the real risk and uh if some of their procedures are now unnecessary it it can further create acceptance because a lot of people now uh, are using ivf or um, going to clinics to create their families there's, there's more diversity now in single mothers by choice and same-sex um, partners having um their children via this now so it's such a loud they they hold um you know, everyone's coming forward and, and all these health organisations are coming forward and, and getting rid of this discrimination. It seems clinics are one of the last to, uh, to be changing this. I think it doesn't happen until someone, and I think you found that, Mark, didn't you? It doesn't happen until somebody comes to the clinic in that situation. Because while it's not sort of affecting the clinic, they're not thinking about it. They're just getting on with business as usual and they haven't really updated themselves with with procedures. They're just doing what they've always done. But we know in New Zealand that people have reevaluated their procedures because of this campaign and because we've had people asking about it. And so they have reevaluated their situation. So maybe it's just a bit of education is required. But I also still think there's a little bit of stigma around there that. People don't quite trust it and they're afraid of liability. If it well, yeah, but the science is there. And I think that's yeah. the conversation we yeah. had with the fertility clinics here. We can yeah. show them all the evidence. Yeah. Um, and then they were willing to change their procedures because it's actually, there's a lot of money in it if they get more people on board and same-sex couples are a, you know, a prime opportunity to make money. Mm. Um, so um, I think and the reality is HIV is not a gay disease, right? So you can't discriminate based on gay men. Um, you need to have standardized procedures mm. for everybody to make sure that the samples are safe, right? So Absolutely. that's, yeah. and that's what they've done here is they basically updated the procedures to make sure it's appropriate based on the science to make sure people can have kids. Do you, do you feel that it's uh, an old school thing that hasn't been updated and they're saying it's gay men because based on anal sex, because I think some of the, some of the, um, uh, questionnaires in, in American clinics as well do say, or do you partake in anal sex, whether or not they're hetero or not as well? Do you know, do you feel that's probably uh, a thing that just someone made up back then and just said, we're stick to, and no one's bothered to change it now over time. Yeah. And, and, and now, and what, and you know, you've, you're in positive body positive Mark and uh, you're in positive women, um, Jane, and you've, you've formed, sperm positive, you know, where did the idea of this originate? You know, how did this first come to fruition? Uh, you know, the idea and the concept behind it. And then obviously you've gone and met all these clinics. Uh, how much work and resistance was there to put forward all this case to make it, make sperm positive, get this traction that it has now? Um, I don't think we got a lot of resistance from the fertility clinics when we talked to them. They didn't know about it. So I think that was the challenge. Um, the reality is that the U equals U movement was born out of um, sperm clinics back in the early 2000s. When they were doing the sperm washing, the people who were doing it, was, I think it might've been in Italy that they did it or not. And they discovered that they weren't seeing sperm in the HIV positive samples from people that were undetectable. And so that's where 2008, they came out with that statement. So the, the science is all there. 
And the, the fertility clinics were just like, oh, well, this is just legacy stuff that we've had here and we've never looked at it because no one's asked the question. So we went when we went and we had all the evidence behind it and all the science, they were quite happy to go through and update all their procedures. Mm. Um, so that was, and I think the reason we got into this space was because we were focusing a lot around the stigma of, towards people with HIV based on transmission from food or from sharing cups, all this stuff that was just, we know it is wrong and it's not possible to transmit. And we said, we actually need to go to the space where people are potentially transmitting through sex um, and to show that it can't be done. Because yeah. we've got the evidence, we've got the science and we can show that people can have children naturally without any risk of transmission. And so that's why we kind of really honed in on this piece. Yeah. And yeah, I think the uptake has been amazing. Like we've had lots of people sign up for sperm positive as donors and as recipients. Um, the really cool thing is yeah. like, we've got some lesbian couples that have joined that want to have a baby with one of our male donors. So one woman's having a baby this year, and then the other partner is going to have the baby with the same donor next year so that the babies are genetically linked and that, and it's all just home-based fertilization. The person's undetectable and it's just, you know, it's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. We didn't initially set out to start up the sperm bank. That wasn't really, we also worked with the New Zealand AIDS Foundation. There was the three organizations together. And our main thing was that we wanted to highlight and educate about U equals U. And, and as Mark said, what, so what was the best way that we could do that? And this, this goes right back to basics. It goes back to you know, having sex, having children. You know, initially we were just gonna do it as a campaign. We weren't really gonna do it as a reality, but we felt that if we didn't actually do it, it, it wouldn't prove the reality of it. So it's a little bit controversial and it pushed a few boundaries, but we haven't had any real, there was, there was quite a bit of faith when it, when it first launched on Facebook. But ironically, what, what we noticed was that other people were coming back and saying the positives and arguing with the people who were making the negative comments. But we've had cooperation with the sperm banks. They've all gone and redone, not all, but ones with Mark has been talking to. They've reevaluated, and I think, you know, they were stuck in old paradigms and they've, they've opened and changed those now. And yeah. you know, we've shown, we've set out what we wanted to do, which was to prove that we've had a baby just born already this year who is negative from a father who is living with HIV. And we've got another baby coming soon. So we've got a lot more evidence in that because you know, with positive women over the last eight years, we've had, we've had about 27, 28 babies, all of them are negative. So. No, we haven't had a positive baby in New Zealand, like, like Mark said, since 2007. Mm. So really, it's a, a way of trying to educate the community about you we called you. Yeah. yeah, and just and the other thing is like we just had Fair Day, which is part of our Pride celebration, and the fertility clinics were there representing. So mm. they're fully engaged in the gay community around fertility. Oh, well, there's a lot of business there, isn't it? As, you know, yeah, it's huge business. <laughs> it makes sense, you know, if they can see the money inspiration and hey, we can make money in this. Not only, you know, ethically, it's a good thing, a message to get out, but there's their incentive right there, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. So, spam positive came about. You know, how do you get your message out to 
people with HIV that this is uh, an accessible way of having children now? Because I think a lot of people that would have initially um, had HIV and uh, I'd still say there'd be doctors out there that are not up to date with the medical science of things as well um, in terms of telling them to have children and stuff like that. You know, what platforms, you know, you said you had your pride day in New Zealand the other, other, other day or week, um, you know, the clinics are there putting all these boards up now letting people know, you know, um, how do we sell this and, you know, how do we continue this development of breaking down the stigma? I, I mean, I think it's probably a huge amount of this can come from the, um, the, the HIV community and the organisations like us. Um, and also I know there's lots in, in, in Australia as well, NAPWA and ACON and all of the people living with it. I think those are the people that are in the best position to really promote this. And through their own, like, you know, we have lots of members, both body positive and positive women who are living with HIV. We have, um, there are um, website, not websites, what do you call them, chat groups and Facebooks for people living with HIV. So you get the message out through that. But then for the public to have a campaign like this, which is, for the general public to, to raise their awareness and also for people living with HIV. If we hadn't done this, no, nobody else would have done it. No, so no, it, no. it does take the people living with HIV networks, I think, to be driving these things. Yeah, and I think it's in, important to have those conversations with the fertility clinics so that if somebody does come to them and say, I want to have a child as a, as a single mom or as a lesbian couple or whoever, they know they can bring their friend and actually make that happen. And I think that's a piece, I think that's what was really important with, with our program was to get the different fertility cl clinics on board. So people who didn't come through our program, when they went and talked to them about how they could have children, they were, they were fully supported. Mm. And, and, you know, if people, like we've got all the evidence, we've gone through and done lots of research on that and the science behind it. So they can get that from our website, it's Sperm Positive, or they can get in touch with us and we'd be happy to share that evidence as well. So, yeah, I, I run Sperm Donation Australia and I've got a small community out there called Sperm Donation New Zealand and uh, Sperm Donation USA, just pretty much around the world, each individual one. And as I said, in Australia, we've got a, a couple of men with uh, HIV that donate and they, they're up front and, and tell the people that obviously, but just ethically. And um, I think, you know, for me, it's important that I get this uh, message across just for them and, and, and for other people to consider um, the minimal, um, the non-existent risks we we now don't have to face and um you know so you said they reach out to you uh you know how, how do they come to you via email they contact you and say hey mark i'm looking at becoming a donor can you help me out what what sort of uh, how inquisitive are people um in terms of being sorted out and how many people are coming forward now since you've created this program um a lot of it's been run through the AIDS foundation so they're kind of managing it and they're getting emails through the website or they'll get people will just come and chat to us about it. So they'll just ask about how do we go about this and just what's the science behind it and that kind of thing. Um, yeah, so that's the main way. It's just kind of, it, what we've done is just basically changed the conversations of it. Because usually people have known donors, what is what we're dealing with. Yeah. Um, and so they know the person and they want to make sure that it's safe. And so we can provide the evidence behind that so that the person, the couple, the couple's confident that they can go ahead and actually have the child on their own. So we haven't been referring a lot of people into fertility clinics because they don't need that support. It's just more about connecting people. 
Yeah. Mm. No, no, I think it's um, it's amazing what you are doing, and that sort of other countries can sort of. Uh, you know, people say let's follow New Zealand how they dealt with the COVID nineteen situation, but let's follow how New Zealand's going with this uh, spam positive uh, program that you've put that you've all put together, and it's something that you um, can all be pretty proud of. You know, you've just said that you've had your first baby born. I think that'd probably be a very proud and and warm. Like, I mean, you'd see that baby as if it's your own in some in some way uh, of. Mm a program yeah. starting to unfold now and, you know, you know, the, yeah, it would be, you know, just as, as much as my community is, I'm proud of every child that gets born via my community. It must be um, a really worthy cause that has some, just some heart warmth um, reward for yourselves as well to be a part of that, to know that you've made people feel that they can, can do this. Yeah. And the fathers are really proud, aren't they? Mark. Yeah, and and you know, as a you know, a lot of the people in New Zealand with HIV are, are gay men, um, and so you don't think you can have kids. You think that's something that's been taken away from you as a gay man, um, and then when you're diagnosed with HIV, you think it's been taken even further away, so you'll never have a child. For so for these people to actually have kids now, they're just blown away that that's actually a possibility. It's something they thought could never ever happen. And what is your views, Mark? I mean, obviously you grew up, and at the eighteen, at eighteen, I think you came out and you said you were gay and where was that regardless of HIV or not did you feel that having children as a gay man would be hard you know was that something that you just instantly ruled out that was something that you know for for you um probably when you put it that way because I I don't have any interest in having kids but but it's probably because I ruled it out because when I when I realized I was gay that I couldn't you know so Mm. Yeah, so I probably just I probably just ruled it out, and that's the way I that's why I feel the way that I do that I'm not interested in having children. Do you yeah. get? I mean, your view of the gay community as such, you know, we we get some um, gay donors, and I'd love to get more 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 gay men coming in and and having that paternal instinct, whether or not it be co-parenting or an uncle figure role, um, where they're not necessarily raising the child per se. Uh, yeah. Do you feel that? There is a lot of men that um, subconsciously just realise they've never had kids, so it's been put aside that they never get that paternal instinct, for instance. I'd probably say, yeah. Mm. So I think that's the thing is you kind of, you don't think it's a possibility. And I think that's where we have a chance to change that narrative now, Mm. to say you can actually have kids, you can live in a you know different kind of structure in terms of your your, your relationship. So one of my, my ex from Australia actually really wanted to have children and I didn't. Um, and so he went ahead to have a surrogate with his, uh, with his new boyfriend. So, so he's got a new partner, they've got a surrogate mom, they, the mom lives with them. They've got, I think, three kids now. So it's, it's a different family dynamic. And I think to realise those possibilities are available to people, to be a, an uncle or to have a surrogate who lives with you and have a different kind of relationship is, you know, we can do whatever we want. And I mean, it's, it's for me, it's, it's amazing to see how organisations like yourself and the ones that I'm involved with is how it's not, we're not only changing day by day now and tomorrow, but, future generations you know like for a 10 year old 11 year old boy growing up that may start feeling oh, I'm, I'm, i might like men um 
but to have that in the background of his head where he's not actively thinking about having children at that age, of course, but to know just subconsciously that this is, you know, uh, you know, I think there's, there was gay men in the past that I've spoken to that have said uh, they wouldn't want to have children anyway because they wouldn't want their child being teased or bullied, you know, and now we're coming into um, a way where, you know, schools have been really fantastic, especially in Australia. Like, you know, if, like if I say something that's not politically correct in a way, and sometimes it's annoying because it's not that bad, but my child goes, Dad, you can't say that, but yeah, <laughs> and it, and they pick you up, and and these morals and values have been um, uh, instilled on them now yeah. from a young age, and uh, mm-hmm. you know, um, political correctness in some ways has gone a bit overboard, but in some ways it's really um, good in terms of discrimination against sexualities and ethnicities and and all that sort of stuff now, um, which is um, it's also interesting. I mean, you know, I'm sort of coming out. Well, I am grandmother status now, but I was talking to someone the other day and she has both a son and a daughter who are both gay. And, she, and her instinct was, oh, I'm never going to have any grandchildren. And I said, well, you may, you know. Oh, no, yeah. you know. But just because they're gay doesn't mean that they, they're not going to have children. Mm. In this day and age, I think probably that was the mindset, you know, 20 years ago. But it doesn't need to be the mindset anymore. Absolutely not. Well, you know, in our community as well, we we get grandmothers joining the group, and I'm looking at them going. Initially, I was looking at them going, oh, "You look a bit too old to be having children," uh, but no, they they they're in the group because they're researching to get an education, so then they can. Um, let the child know that, hey, you can have children this way. I've done my research. You know, I want to be a grandmother. And, <laughs> and they yeah. sort of push them down that, that route, which is, um, yeah, good on them, you know. Um, you, know uh, you know, there's uh, there's a lot of people that have a grand, grandmother maternal um, instinct and I guess a grandpop instinct as well. Uh, you know, so, yeah, it's just amazing now that uh, technology and forums and communities and organizations such as yourself is giving people so much diversity and options now, whereas before they felt they were in a basket that was put aside and that's how they're going to live out their life. And now it's sort of opened up a whole new world for people to explore and, and, uh, at least um, consider those avenues, whereas before they never really had that option. Uh, you know, for me, I think uh, a story a couple of years ago um, that came out when Charlie Sheen came out and said he had HIV or he was exposed that he had HIV or in that situation, it, it sort of really opened the world because um, everyone saw Charlie Sheen as a, a, a hornbag, uh, you know, a, a, a guy that loves to have sex with lots of women or, you know, all that kind of stuff. And But the fact was when he came out, all the women that he had sex with was uh, wanting to sue him initially because saying that you put me at risk. But this was the first time that it came out. It was controversial how it came out with all these people trying to get their own media story of he had sex with me and that. But it showed that none of them contracted the virus and that made it really real for people to say, well, if no one's catching HIV off Charlie Sheen, we're living in a pretty safe world now, like the way that um, medication is starting to develop. How did you react to that story of Charlie Sheen um, coming out, you know, as opposed to uh, other celebrities uh, over the years? I personally felt very sorry for him. I I mean, you know, he's, and I think he's quite an example of what I was saying before about people going into denial. I don't think he was in denial because he, 
he was taking charge, but he was certainly not telling anybody about it. So he was kind of living his life like he didn't have it, but he was taking his meds and stuff like that. But I, you know, the way that he was outed was absolutely atrocious. And that's the one freeing thing. Once people know they can't hold that over you. So, you know, and he, and he has been supporting all that stuff finished, but, you know, I'm sure he's feeling a lot better about being open now, about mm. being, being able to be open now. But, you know, for somebody like that, a celebrity status, it must be so hard. You know, it's hard enough for an ordinary person, but for, to, to have to then disclose, and especially for someone who's been a, quite a womanizer, to, he probably felt that, you know, nobody would ever want him again and all sorts of things. So mm. I felt very sorry for him. And, uh, yeah, it's, it's a media circus, really. It was a media circus, but to me, it was a realisation that people could have unprotected sex now without spreading the virus. You know, you had to see a bit of controversial and people come out and complain, going, oh, you had sex with me. You had to see the the shock of of them accusing him and that and probably ethically maybe you should have told him in hindsight that he did have it rather. But I think he did take the approach of like he knew he was at a viral load that was undetectable and untransmittable. So he, he probably didn't feel it was necessary. So it was a bit of a minefield to navigate. But to come out and, and do it like that, people, you know, for instance, um, I said to um, an episode just before to um, don't concede people that, you know, these days when an article comes out about sperm banks or a donor or a recipient or a donor concede person, you'll, you'll have a particular interest in reading that because it, it relates to uh, a surrounding in your lifestyle. Like, you know, it, it um, resonates with you. And, uh, you know, a lot of people with HIV, they understand it. You know, they well, I don't have it, so I don't need to read about it. So when someone like Charlie Sheen comes out and is diagnosed with it and was like, well, I like two and a half men or I like this movie he starred in, um, you know, it draws them to read about it, to understand where the virus is at now and how we're suppressing it. In a, in a way, it was sort of, it was horrible the way it probably came out, but in a way it was necessary that it came out that I think a lot more people got educated around that time um, around it. So, I mean, was it a double-edged sword? Sword maybe, but like, it's, you know, it's amazing. Cause like, as I said, I think, um, you know, Magic Johnson played basketball. He went to retirement straight away and then, he came back a year or two later just to prove that people with HIV can play and you're not going to catch it from sweat or, you know, brushing body, bodily fluids on, on the basketball court. You know, the rugby player last year as well, wasn't there? The, the Welsh rugby player. Yeah. Also. So, I mean, look, it's, you know, these celebrities and uh, um, high-profile people that do end up having it, yeah, it is hard for them to be put out on, as a display for everyone to see, but the the stories are uh, what gets people interested and educated. And, uh, um, yeah, it's, it's it, you know, the power of their influences of coming out and being open can, you know, fast-track acceptance and, and all that kind of stuff. You said about the females with HIV-carrying child. That's pretty much down to having an undetectable amount in their system so it doesn't get into the womb and 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 go through the children it, um jane did you find that a lot of women were not having children because they thought that they the fear of passing it on or the what if fear rather than say they they're getting wind of that it's not transmittable but it's still the what if of holding them back maybe um in the you know 
HIV, just because you're HIV positive doesn't automatically mean the baby will be HIV positive. I mean, even without medications, the risk is around 30, 30 to 33%. So it doesn't, you know, doesn't necessarily mean just because you've got HIV, your baby's going to have HIV. A lot of women in the earlier days when they were diagnosed made the choice and probably were told also not to have children. Once the switch came out, we, we had a, 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 an event for people living with HIV, I think it was in 2004. And we got one of the doctors to come and talk to, these are all families living with HIV. Some of them are with positive and negative partners. And, and talking about the, the um, Swiss statement, within the next 12 months, we had five pregnancies, right, within that community. So it's like, as soon as people heard the science, it changed their, their attitudes around it. And it also changed their partners who were negative because they might've been a bit nervous about it as well. And people were having unprotected sex. And prior to that, a lot of couples that one was positive, one was negative, they were doing the artificial insemination. Obviously that was because the partner was negative, the male was negative and the woman was positive. So they would just do artificial insemination with the turkey base with themselves at home. Um, but after, after that statement came out, and so the women are very confident now, and we have the rollout in New Zealand nine years ago so that, that yeah. we did that talk. So what's nine years ago? 2014. So, so that's when we had the, the, um, the family who we gathering where we told everybody about youth uh, with you. But um, yeah, there's lots of women, and even women now are interested in the sperm bank. I guess it just seems an easier way to get in touch with other people who are living with HIV to help each other out, to have babies as well. Yeah, no, it's, um, it's amazing, isn't it? But, yeah. And I, I, what I was saying before was that we have um, in New Zealand that all women who um, become pregnant within their first antenatal um, checkup, they will be tested for HIV. And if they are positive, they will then be put straight onto medications. And so that means by the time that their baby is due to be born, their viral load will be undetectable and the baby has even less risk of contracting HIV. The baby will then have antiretroviral medications for the first um, four to six weeks, but even that is reducing now. They used to also have other procedures, which are all slowly stopping now, like the baby used to be washed very quickly and all the rest of it. But all of that is stuck with you equals you now. It's it's pretty, um, you know, mother goes on to antiretrovirals. By the time she gives birth, she's fine, baby's fine. And that's what's happened in New Zealand since 2007, we've not had a positive baby. So what's the end goal? You know, um, what, where, where does the mission go to now? We, we, you know, you're getting people through the door, they're using this, uh, you know, what is sperm positives ultimate goal is there a set percentage of people that we want to start seeing come through the doors a bit more actively you know or um would you like to see this start taking off internationally now uh and following in the steps that new zealand clinics have been um educated about and and doing uh yeah, well, what do you see going on in the next few years in terms of sperm positive and uh, encouraging people this this way of creating their families? 
it's more about raising the education and just normalizing that anybody can have kids. Like that's, it's more about information and that's what we want to do. So that's why we've got the website. We've got the, the all the information on the website. So people don't even need to come to us. They can just realize, actually, I can do it. And I can just go on, we can go and have a kid. Mm. So because I don't, we don't need to connect them to the fertility clinic, but we've educated the fertility clinics in case that's where their first touch point is. So they can tell them, you can have a kid with us or you can do it yourself, um, whatever you want. Um, so it's just, it just becomes a standard process. So that's really what happens, what, what needs to happen in other places like Australia, all the fertility clinics there need to be upskilled so that they change their practices as well. So everybody realizes that you know, gay people can donate, people living with HIV can donate, um, they can be recipients and there is no risk there at all. So it just becomes standardized. Mm. There's still, like I was looking at the data out of Canada and their language is still very much around that whole sperm washing model. If someone's positive and undetectable, they still do sperm washing. And they're like, you don't have to do that. So, yeah. And that's what they're kind of putting out there. And that that's the language that needs to change. So it just becomes normalized and everybody's on the same page that if you're undetectable, you cannot transmit HIV so that anybody can participate. So that's kind of where sperm positive is. It's kind of done what it needs to do in terms of raising that knowledge in New Zealand. So all the fertility clinics are on board with it people with HIV and are coming with the terms with that understanding and we can connect people if they want to you know actually hook up as such and have children well I think yeah. I think I think sperm washing now is predominantly really used not just to eliminate HIV uh, that's what it was created for but there's a very small small percentage of women that have a semen, um, semen reactions um, inflammation and stuff like that and I think they're just trying to eliminate that altogether um, because obviously when they do wash sperm you lose motility you you, you lose um, sperm dye so they actually the the process of it is actually really um, good in terms of increasing chances of conception so for me I look at um, sperm washing and there's so many um, and, and you know 99 percent or up to uh, let's say three percent it might be a little bit of inflammation and that's it. So it's very, really minimal, the risk of it. But I think they're just saying like we, you know, they're trying to cover all corners of not being sued yeah. by a woman that might have an allergic reaction to semen. And and most women uh, don't. So they're, they're trying to cover their base against a really small percentage now. So I don't agree with sperm washing because I think it, it deteriorates the DNA of the sperm. You know, does that um, affect their longevity of lifestyle you know of a person saying living to 100 years does it bring down the age to 70 or 60 years or something like that we just don't know because there is dna damage because obviously sperm isn't coming back alive as well when they after the washing process um so yeah no it's um there's so much about technology and science that we're still learning and you know we're we're all going along this ride ride for it um, but yeah, as he said, is uh, for for a HIV standpoint of view, it, it's now become a necessary um, sperm washing in that regard, which is you know it's interesting because that's what what it was originally created for. Um, <laughs> how many people? I'll ask this to Mark because you are Australian. Um, how many people in Australia are living with HIV? Do would, would you know? And how many in New Zealand? I think I read somewhere three thousand five hundred. Is that currently correct or still around that mark? Yeah, so in New Zealand, it's around 3,500 people. I think Australia's around 25,000 is the number I seem to know. I'm just having a quick Google to see if I can get that. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm pretty sure it's around 25,000 in Australia. 
Ah, uh, yeah. So, yeah, in 2019, it was estimated there was 29,000 people in Australia living with HIV. 29? 29,000, yeah. That's a lot. That's a lot more than I thought. Yeah. Well, what's the population of New Zealand? Is it 4 million, is it? Nearly 5. 5 million. So, I guess you're 5 million and Australia is 30, 30 million. So, that's six times the population uh six times free let's say that's twenty thousand. so yeah we've got about nine thousand per um per population i guess overall overall mm. um so yeah i guess i guess there's a, it's slightly more prevalent in australia than it is in new zealand uh but those figures though twenty nine thousand out of 30 million though are still really um a small amount of people aren't they mm. um i'm not sure what yeah. You know, I think you, they say Thailand and there's some African countries with much higher um, rates. But these days now, the amount of people that are getting tested and that, you know, how many people would you say are going around New Zealand undetected? I mean, it would be hard to put a finger on, but would you? Would there be a ballpark, would you say that? I don't think oh. there's many. I don't think there's many anymore. I think at one point there used to be a formula around 20%, but I don't, I don't believe it's that high anymore, but... Maybe you know more than me around that, Mark. No, that's a number they brought out from 2011 um, yeah. where they said one in five people didn't know they were living with HIV and they, they yeah. did that through saliva testing. But that number is totally out of date. Yeah. Um, yeah. In terms of like just globally, there's 38 million people living with HIV. Yeah. And that we got what, seven, six just so you know. billion now? Six yeah. billion. So that's. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's um, you know, I think I think it's nice to see those numbers getting reduced. And but I mean, this is another question that I've I have and I've and I've thought about. And um, you know, we've we've got these levels down now to undetectable and untransmittable. Are pharmaceutical companies holding back now? It seems like you're getting that viral laid down to the very last point of having it without that knockout blow of eliminating it and i've read many places that the uh the virus is always changing and uh um mutating and and stuff like that but obviously the the antiviral um you know the medication that you're taking now is still working and keeping you at uh lower levels you know is there any are we going to get a cure? Is it in a pharmaceutical company's best interest to eliminate it? Or would they rather you have medication every day for the rest of your life? The, the challenge with a cure is that while we get people to undetect, well, they still have virus because the virus hides out in places like lymph nodes and stuff like that. Mm. And so the challenge is they have to flush all that virus out into the system so it can be killed by the medication. And that's the piece they're having a really hard time with is being able to just eliminate all detect all available virus in the body. So while it's undetectable, it's still hiding out in reservoirs. So that's the challenge. So that's why if you stop taking your medication, it comes back because it starts replicating again. So yeah. that's the point they need to move to. So one of the ideas is with the, the new technology they've got with the COVID vaccine, the mRNA technology, is that potentially we could get a, a, a cure coming from that. But there's always been these thoughts of, you know, how can we get a cure? There's been about four people cured of HIV in the world, um, ever. So it, it, it can be done. <laughs> Do you think it's going to be something that we see in our lifetime? You know, would you, if, you, if you're optimistic, what would you say best case scenario of, of um, eradicating it? 
uh, I don't know. What they're, what they're moving towards at the moment is um, long-acting injectable mm-hmm. treatments where people take an injection once every two months rather than taking pills every day. Yep. And so what will happen, that'll stretch out longer and longer. So maybe you'll take an injection once every 12 months. You'll see undetectable. So while we haven't got to a cure, we've got it to a much more manageable place. So you're not taking daily treatment. I guess um, it's... I guess that's like when those uh, when women have the implant in their in their arm that retreat, mm. um, instead of taking yeah. the pill every day, it just slowly uh, releases it into their body. Yeah. So yeah, yeah, same technology. So we'll move into that space sooner than we get to a place where we have a cure, right? Yeah. 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 It's it's a, it's amazing. I mean, look, uh, I was very young in the eighties and nineties. I was born in the eighties, uh, you know, and I think um, I watched Back to the Future back when I was a child and thought it'd be on hoverboards with the year two thousand and stuff like that. <laughs> and I think, uh, you know, I think I, it was a concept in my day that was when I was going to become sexually active that it was going to be a thing of the past. Um, uh, but you know, in that time, we've got fast internet now and fast um, phones that we can use as a, we're, you know, um, we're pretty much a cyborg now with the technology at our disposals in our hands that we can ability to look at. And I think it would be a very proud day for you, Jane, especially, and also Mark, the work that you've contributed to it over the years and what you represent to get that news that it's finally been a thing of the past, you know, like whether or not it's simple injection that, um, gets rid of it or a tablet or something like that it's, it'd probably be a very proud day around the world when that when that eventually does does mm. happen yeah how would you feel living in a world that hiv no longer exists yeah i'd be unemployed <laughs> <laughs> that would be, it would be great it's i mean i i like I said before, I, I don't even know how I managed to survive mm. it. You know, a lot of people died in the 80s. And for me, it's a miracle that I'm even alive. Yes, that gives me hope for a cure, but I'm not sure it'll happen in my lifetime. Yeah. Um, but definitely things are a lot much better than they used to be. And it's just, you know, we still get people who are newly diagnosed and it's still very traumatic when they come in and they're still but what i'm seeing is that people seem to kind of bounce back a little bit quicker than they would have done 15 years ago and that is because of the knowledge of the fact that they're not going to die and there are medications and they get undetectable very quickly and so it's still a traumatic diagnosis it's still very person who's diagnosed but it's just really great to see how much quicker they they're rebounding and, you know, especially the younger ones who are single, they're getting married and they're having babies and getting on with their lives. So, you know, I'm, for me, it's already a, a bit of a miracle. Mm. Um, yeah. What are the main ways of HIV? Did you find that since dating apps came, has there been a rise since now or is, is all the levels starting to plateau plateau off now in, let's say, New Zealand? Like, are you finding there's apps like Tinder and Grinder and all that stuff that are making it easy to transmit? Um, I know people say the chlamydia rates are up now because of that, but in terms of um, HIV, has that, been a, has that been a bad influence in terms of um, the virus spreading around again, or have you not noticed that many trends now in this day and age? We, we haven't seen women. that. Yeah, Sorry, Mark. I'll, I'll just say, because my be a quick answer, for women, no. 
Yeah. You know, that, that's not the way that's happening for women. Women, it's still pretty much overseas to higher prevalence countries and coming back to New Zealand with or um, within New Zealand um, in relationship with um, men who are either bisexual or um, higher risk countries. But certainly not not through the Tinder webs, but I think there might be a different story for men. Yeah, for, for gay men, uh, so Grindr is the main way people connect now, and so there's that whole negotiation around casual sex that's quite easy nowadays. Mm. Um, but the other thing is that we've got PrEP, so pre-exposure prophylaxis. So if you're you know, sexually active and potentially at risk, you just go on to PrEP and then you can't get HIV. So that's a really good thing that's happened and it's happened a lot in Australia as well. So those people seen most at risk are accessing PrEP, so like the contraceptive pill, to, so that they don't get HIV. So I think that's helping to drop numbers, but like we had the highest number of HIV cases ever recorded in 2016. So it had gone up significantly until then. And then and over the last two, three years, it's dropped off. Um, so we are seeing a decline, but there's still... The problem is that when we're getting to the people who are engaged and informed and educated, we're not getting to the people who aren't connected into the community or to those pieces. So they don't know about things like prep or they people don't, you know, a lot of the young people I talk to today don't know what HIV is. You know, um, we do these talks and they're like, how do you get it? What is it? Because none of that, all that history is gone from the eighties. So that whole epidemic that happened where everybody was dying a lot of the young kids don't know about that piece. And so mm. there, there's that lack of information. And so, and, you know, we had a 16-year-old diagnosed with HIV last year. So he isn't getting the education through the schools because they don't want to talk about gay sex. They don't want to talk about HIV. He can't access PrEP because it's not funded for people under 18. So, you know, that's where we've got, we've missed, we're falling down in that we, we don't get to those nuanced people that need that support. We just, we keep it at a, you know, a high level kind of public health campaign that targets, you know, the usual suspects. So, and that's, that's the challenge. And I, I hope this, um, this episode gets out to uh, the people in the sperm donor community. Uh, you know, you've, you've provided some really good insight now for those who want to take the extra precaution when using their donor. You know, if you used him over a couple of months and haven't got an updated STD test, just see your doctor and ask for a prescription of PrEP. And uh, that, that should be able to um, give you just an extra safety mechanism if you choose to uh, wanting to use that. Uh, Mark and Jane, I really appreciate you coming on and sharing this um, knowledge and sharing your stories and, you know, um, just from speaking to you today, I feel like we've achieved a lot in terms of getting a message out there to um, a lot of people as well. And, uh, you know, if you feel this um, episode um, and what we spoke about can help your communities and uh, positive women or sperm positive or um, body positive, feel free to share the episode in, in, in your um, websites and, and, and that as a, as a tool for people to uh come to and listen to because I think, yeah, it's very important just for normal people to have conversations and put these questions out there and for you to answer it on a platform like this and a podcast, which, you know, people can listen to while they're going to work, doing exercise or at the gym, you know, in their commutes anywhere, anywhere in particular on a family holiday, you know, it's such a, it's, it's such a great educational tool and that's why uh, I do what I do and, uh, and love listening to uh, hearing about people like yourself doing what you do as well. It's very rewarding and, 
you know, there's still so much uh, messages to get out there. So I do really appreciate you coming on and, and sharing your stories today. Thank you. And thank you for, for doing it because, you know, every single person who can relay the message to another person, to another avenue is, you know, that just gets, that just spreads the word out. And so thank yeah. you for doing this. And, and I just want to add to that while you're speaking to, to Body Positive and Positive Women, the New Zealand AIDS Foundation also were very heavily involved in this as well. So it was a collaborative between three organisations. And I think that's why it's also been so great because we've had, you know, different perspectives looking at it. And, and we've, you know, the, the, the website is, I think, beautiful. And I think the messaging is significant and strong and the outcomes have been beautiful, you know, the births of these babies. So it's been a very successful campaign and thank you for helping us to get it out further. No, you're, you're welcome. Um, you know, for me, uh, it's, yeah, it's very special to get these stories out there. So, yeah, thank you. We'll stay in touch and uh, we'll see how we progress with breaking down this stigma together um, from all different organisations, perceptions and angles and communities uh, working towards this one direction of uh, of breaking down this stigma that we've got, you know, that we continue to do every single day. And, uh, uh, you know, so, yeah, it's just, it's, it's magical what people like yourself do. So I appreciate that. So I'll see you around. All right. Thanks a lot. Thank you. Thanks a lot. I want to break free.